worship team. So I don't know about you, but I really appreciate how the songs are just so well selected to both speak truth so that we're singing truth and it engages our minds, and at the same time is just put together so well that it lifts our spirits emotionally and so that we're able to worship both in spirit and truth with our whole mind and our whole emotion. And uh, so thank you so much, music team, for doing that every week for us. Well, we're continuing in our Advent series today in the four servant songs of Isaiah, and so we're in the third song today, and we picked these songs to look at because of a couple reasons. One is, as you've seen already, they highly exalt Jesus Christ as our Savior, and in ways that we've perhaps never even seen before in the Scriptures. And at the same time, it's strongly, they all strongly encourage us as the people of God to do our job in sharing the gospel of the good news of Jesus Christ to everyone around us. And just to want to remind you again about Isaiah's ministry that uh, he prophesied for 60 years at a very long ministry in the 8th to 7th centuries B.C. in Jerusalem. And uh, most of his time, though, was spent warning the people of God that they're going to be soon going into exile because they've been rebelling against the true God. They have been uh, giving themselves to the worship of idols, uh, and they have been participating in the immorality of the people's around them because they so desired to be accepted by the people around them. But toward the end of Isaiah's ministry, he spoke a lot about the coming Messiah who would save us from our sins. And some of these prophecies are the clearest in the Bible about Jesus. They're the most extensive, and they speak to his glory. And so one of the descriptions that he presents of the Messiah is to talk about him as the servant of the Lord. And there are four sections that really stand out from their context that are called the servant songs. They're beautiful sections of Scripture, and we notice them as we read through Isaiah's prophecy because we stop and read them because they remind us about Jesus Christ. It's pretty obvious. So the first one was Isaiah 42, verses 1 to 9. They're all printed for you in your worship folder as well. Isaiah 49, 1 through 13. Isaiah 50, which we're looking at today verses 4 through 11, and of course, the most famous one that we all know so well in Isaiah 52 and 53. So please turn in your Bibles to the third song from Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 11. It's also printed for you in your worship folder. Um, There is an error at the top where it, it gives you Isaiah 49, but the text beneath it is Isaiah 50. So you have the right text in front of you. Um, If you don't like that, just turn to your Bibles. There's a Bible in front of you as well but that's the way it is today. So, I wasn't going to call you out by name. These things happen. That's fine, okay? So, the first song was from Isaiah 42, and there Yahweh commissioned his servant, and he had a big task to do. This servant was going to go throughout the whole world and remove theological ignorance, free prisoners from their sin, and establish worldwide justice. And then in the second servant song, in Isaiah 49, we listened as Yahweh spoke to his servants and talked about more of their worldwide work together and how this servant would reach out to the very ends of the earth to save specific people from all people groups. Well, today in the third song, in Isaiah 40, we're told to trust in the Lord God and in his obedient and suffering servant. Now, in these last two songs that we're looking at, The most significant and mind-boggling thing about the servant comes to the forefront because it describes 
his suffering. And as we read the first two songs, we don't see any suffering. Why would there be suffering in such a glorious ministry? But as we go through these last two songs, we'll see that this fits so well. This is exactly what the servant would have to do to actually accomplish these great goals that were set out in the first two songs. And the climax of talking about the suffering and the reason for it, really, you're going to have to wait till next week because that's in the fourth song in great detail. But there is so much in this third song that I think we will all be amazed and want to worship Jesus even more this morning. So let me pray for us as we look into the Scripture. Lord, we thank you so much for your Word because in your Word you reveal truth about who you are and what you do in this world. Truths that we need to hear and truths that lead us to faith in Jesus Christ, who is our only hope in life and death, our Savior, whom we love and adore this morning. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would understand, and that you, Holy Spirit, would work this in us. Amen. So what you're going to see in the passage in front of you today is that the servant himself, who's, of course, Jesus Christ, is going to be giving a speech. And this speech is in verses 4 to 9. And then when he's done giving his speech, then the Lord God follows up on that with some words of encouragement to believe what he actually said. And so our passage breaks down in verses 4 to 6, is that the servant, we're to listen to and he will listen to and fully obey Yahweh, regardless of great costs to himself. Then in verses 7 to 9, the servant's going to receive strength from Yahweh in the midst of this suffering. And then finally in verses 10 and 11, the Lord God encourages us to trust him and to trust his servant whom he would send. And so may this servant, whom we know to be the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ, be glorified in our eyes yet again this morning, and may we trust in him, the obedient one. So the first characteristic that we learn about the servant, that we learn about our Jesus, is that he would listen to and fully obey Yahweh. So the outline of this little section in verses 4 to 6, you'll see in verses 4 and 5, and I'll read it to you in a minute, that the servant listens and obeys in verses 4 and 5, but then in verse 6, we read that the servant obeys to the extreme. So verses 4 through 6, the Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Now, the context surrounding you know, this section, it's always hard when you're in the middle of a book of the Bible because you don't really know what's before and what's after. And of course, you can read that on your own. But the context surrounding this, this passage is the omnipotence of God, His all-powerfulness, and the certainty of all the promises that He brings to us, especially the promise that He is going to deliver us from our sin and our rebellion at some point. And this passage stands out from that context very readily. And you'll notice it doesn't really even have an introduction here. We jump right into this, this song. So in verses 4 and 5, we see that the servant listens and obeys. And the servant is the one who begins the speech because if you look at the end in verse 10, it says, Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? 
So we know who's speaking, even though it's not introduced like so many of the other songs are. And it's obvious that this is an individual, this servant that we're talking about. It's not the nation. This is the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ speaking, Yahweh, the eternal Son of God. And the Lord God, that phrase, you'll notice, Adonai Yahweh, appears four times in our passage in verse 4, in verse 5, in verse 7, and in verse 9. And it emphasizes the seriousness and the certainty of the fact that this servant will be vindicated by God himself, by the Father, and by the Spirit. And we've already talked about the triune nature of God in the other two songs that we've looked at. It's, re- it's so obvious in every single song, and we don't have time to go into all of those details, but you'll see them as they come up. And then Yahweh, we notice right away, has equipped his servant with the tongue of disciples. That's the literal reading of the Hebrew, and some of you may have that even in your English translation. He's equipped his servant with the tongue of disciples, meaning he has a ready tongue to teach, to teach wisdom. He's prepared with skilled speech, and he's expertly taught by the Holy Spirit to be an instrument of teaching truth. And this again reveals to us the prophetic ministry of Jesus Christ that has been so much mentioned in the first two songs that we looked at in Isaiah. And if you've read Matthew and Mark and Luke and John in the New Testament, you know how Jesus spoke with great wisdom and how he spoke and he came to speak truth from God. He would console, we read, and support weary people, those who hoped in God by believing in him, and these are un- those people who are under the weight of their own sin, people that are under the weight of religious oppression, people who teach them the wrong things, and those who are under the weight of affliction from other people. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble of heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And Jesus still does this today. Do you need him to do this for you today? Jesus is gentle and humble of heart, and he will give you rest for your soul. Just like it says here at the very beginning of Isaiah 50, and how he would minister to people who hope in God truly. Now, thinking about Jesus' earthly ministry, have you ever wanted to know what Jesus did first thing in the morning? You ever want to know what, how Jesus determined what he was going to do that day without his phone to look at? You ever wanted to know what Jesus, how he would know what to say and exactly the right thing to say and do every single day? Well, it's right here, morning by morning. Each morning, Jesus would awake to receive instruction from his Father for the day. It was a disciplined practice of our Lord Jesus that we even see in the Gospels, this personal time of interaction with his Father. And yeah, Jesus had the best quiet times every single day, never missed one, and he had a wonderful time doing it. The Father would daily open his ears, it says, to receive And he would always obey. In John chapter 8, verse 28, Jesus said, I do nothing on my own initiative, 
But I speak these things as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. Verse 5 further emphasizes this full obedience of the servant of the work of, to the work of God. Our Lord Jesus never rebelled. He never rebelled in heart or in action. He was always fully obedient. When you think about others that are called servants in the Old Testament, like Israel, they were rebellious, especially at this time. They weren't listening. They weren't obeying. They were so often apostate and faithless, both at the time of Isaiah and in the time of Jesus Christ's earthly ministry. I mean, not even Moses or Jeremiah or Jonah at the end of his ministry could claim such obedience to God as the servant Jesus Christ claims here. This holy servant Jesus never turned his back. He never even once hesitated or faltered in doing his Father's will. And this passage speaks and hints very strongly at the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. But that's a topic for a different day. But we can learn some very simple lessons right here, right away. We're supposed to listen to God as a daily discipline and receive consolation and the sustenance that we need from Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the implication's clear. If we live our lives that way, it's going to lead to an obedience that gets patterned after our Lord Jesus Christ to do the will of our Father. Maybe that's new to you, that kind of a discipline, that you've never put that into practice in your life. I want to encourage you to do that, and you'll find that by spending daily time in prayer and in the Word first thing in the morning, that your life and your day is going to be filled with the joy of pleasing the Lord and knowing Him and seeing Him do things in ways you've never seen before. Now we get to verse 6, and we see that the servant even obeys to the very extreme. I give my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hide not my, hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Well, here are three examples of his kind of obedience. And, you know, actually, these were the common types of things that would happen to good prophets. You know, because people don't like to hear truth from prophets. They would rather persecute prophets than hear the truth. And so this is a very common thing, uh, the suffering of true prophets. And we've already heard about suffering a little bit in the second song. Remember in the second song on Isaiah 49, 7, it talked about how he would be despised, how he would be abhorred, how people would treat him as if he were their slave. Well, now, even by all these very details that you read here in verse 6, it's going to make the Messiah very identifiable when he actually shows up on the scene. I mean, it's truly astounding. He's speaking here about his future crucifixion event. I mean, you all know the story. He would give his back to those who would strike and whip him. And we all know about Jesus scourging before his crucifixion. But notice how the servant speaks in this passage, and don't miss this. He says, I gave my back. Who do you think was in charge of that crucifixion? It was Jesus Christ himself who was in charge. He was the one in control. He volunteered his back for striking. 
He volunteered with all dignity as the Son of God and with all majesty. He would give his cheek to those who would pluck out the beard. And again, the servant is in control of what's going on. It's as if he looked those men who were ripping the hairs out of his face straight in the eye, right as they were doing it. The idea is that he wouldn't even turn away. He would look them in the face as they would humiliate him. He wouldn't hide his face from verbal abuse or any gestures that they would make or spitting. Well, this servant would have to be the Christ. He's so obedient, so patient, so innocent, so dignified. No one in Israel has ever been like that or could ever be like that. And Jesus talked about this kind of experience that he was going to go through while he was here and told his disciples about it beforehand. For example, in Mark 10.34 we read, And they'll mock him, speaking about himself, and they will mock him, spit upon him, and scourge him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And we remember the trial of our Lord Jesus. Matthew and Luke, as they record the trial, it's as if somehow maybe they knew the third servant song of Isaiah really, really well. Listen to some of the things that they write. In Matthew 26, 67, then they, speaking about Caiaphas's crowd, then they spat in his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him and said, prophesy to us, you Christ, who's the one who hit you? And in Luke 23, 11, and Herod, with his soldiers, after treating him with contempt and mocking him, dressed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate. And then in Matthew 27, 26, then he, speaking of Pilate, then Pilate released Barabbas for them, but after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him to be crucified. And then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after weaving a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they kneeled down before him and mocked him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they spat on him and took the reed and began to beat him on the head. And after they'd mocked him, they took his robe off and put his garments on him and led him away to crucify him. They knew well, Matthew and Luke, of course, Jesus, about Isaiah 50 in verse 6. And everything that's contained and the things that we'll read yet more in these songs in Isaiah. But the servant you see for us today to just understand, he would listen to his father, he would fully obey and we're to observe this, our Savior Jesus was obedient in his suffering to the very end. And we are to trust in him. Because of all of that that he would do for us, our salvation would be full and secure. And then we're supposed to look forward to his vindication, you know, because this speech is only half done. And we just took a little pause in the middle of the speech 
at verse 6, but it continues in verses 7 to 9 because he has a lot more to say about what's going to be happening. During this extreme obedience that he will undergo, the servant's going to receive strength from Yahweh, and we read this in verses 7 through 9. But the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So the Lord God's servants, the servant here obeys and suffers, but he remains very confident that he's going to be vindicated. The servant's strength we read about in verse 7, and then in verses 8 and 9, there's like this triple dare that he gives his enemies. And Jesus speaks this way back then. So in verse 7, we read about his strength. The servant knew that in the midst of his crisis that the Lord God would help them. He knew about the suffering in advance, and he was willing to go through it all. And at the time, this would give him added strength in the midst of it for full obedience in this excruciating, humiliating task that he had to do. And he knew in advance that when he needed the strength, God would give him the strength. That's when the strength would come. And he will not be confounded. He's not going to be confused. He's not going to be disgraced when all this happens. He's not going to be tempted toward those things even. You know, Israel was supposed to be the servant of the Lord. They were never so confident in the Lord. Read their history. They always looked for assistance and a better deal from a better God, a God who would demand less from them. They always did that. But the servant here, the true servant, he is certain that his final end is not going to be this shame, but there's a greater glory and honor. And so he kept his self-determination on his face, and he would face whatever would come, even the cross. He would keep his face set like a flint, acting in a determined confidence. That's the meaning of that. When everything else would look foolish, he would continue to go forward. Again, there are some great parallels with prophets that did a similar thing in their lifetime. Prophet Jeremiah was like that. The prophet Ezekiel had to be like that. They had to have their faces set like flint because everyone around them disbelieved them and was trying to discourage them. Our Lord Jesus Christ, you see, in his life and his earthly ministry, when he was headed to Jerusalem and he was ready for that day to come, other people were giving him advice to be more prudent, to be more concerned about his own safety. And they warned him not to go, to try to protect him because they loved him, but they didn't understand. And in Luke 9, 51, which is a key verse, and we're studying the book of Luke, and we'll get back to it at the beginning of the year, but Luke 9, 51 is the turning point in the book. And it says this, and it came about when the days were approaching for his ascension, meaning going up to Jerusalem, he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now, the fun part is that some English translations, and these are the ones I like better here, actually say he set his face like flint to go to Jerusalem. 
Where do you think that phrase came from? It came from Isaiah 50. And our Lord Jesus Christ would consider the joy and despise the shame, even in the midst of the humiliation. In Hebrews 12, 2, we read, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now we get to the servants triple dare next in verses 8 to 9. Uh, he who vindicates me is near, so who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Well, let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment and the moth will eat them up. Now, this is all spoken in advance by the servant Jesus about what would take place and about how we should understand what's going on in the crucifixion because you know what he would actually do when it came. He would keep his mouth shut like a lamb being led to the slaughter. Well, if you really want to know, you can read the book of Isaiah. Because here he speaks the truth about what's going on in his mind and his heart at the time, and what is really true. But when the day would come, he would willingly offer up himself. And the servant knows his vindication is near, that God the judge is ready, waiting to pronounce that. He knows that the Lord God's on his side in the conflict of truth. And he proclaims and his, his innocence, he proclaims his innocence in this passage. This is really a proleptic speaking about the future and what it's really all about. And so he offers this bold challenge, if you will, speaking about this event in the future to his persecutors, and he's saying, so who will contend with me? Or another way, he's just saying, I dare you to keep on persecuting me. Because you know what's going to happen when the judge renders judgment? I dare you. The vindication from God is not long off, and woe to such contenders with the Son of God. Added to this is the challenge to stand up and go with him before God himself. The NIV puts it this way, who has a case against me? It's in reference to his truth claims and, and his claim to be the sinless son of God. The charge is that no one of his perpetrators, of these perpetrators, would ever dare decide to take the case to God's court because the servant would win. And verse 9 repeats the challenge in light of this confidence of the Lord's help. Final and stronger challenge is to his unanswering persecutors because, you know, did you notice they're not saying anything in our passage? It's because they have nothing to say. And so, really, this last verse could be translated something like this. Well, come on now. Who of you wants to condemn me? And the conclusion is clear. No one has a case to succeed against the Lord God. And so the servant declares that his enemies are going to pass away and come to nothing. Their case is insubstantial. It wouldn't make it in any court. And of course, that's why the persecution and the trials of Jesus Christ were just a bunch of kangaroo courts. If they actually had a real case, they would have presented it. But when people don't have a real case, they just make up lies. And they go after you. The case is full of holes, like a moth-eaten garment, as we're told, and it's going to just continue to disintegrate, and ultimately, they're going to become shamed, just eaten up like a moth would eat up a garment. Can you see how 
the logic here in verses 8 and 9 and what's really going on, it actually has an illusion in the New Testament. We'll look at it a little bit later today, this morning, but in Romans chapter 8. Because the same kind of language is used regarding us who believe in Jesus Christ. So, for example, in Romans 8.33, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? You see, we can face suffering the same way that the servant did and the way he even spoke about it in advance as we live and proclaim the gospel so often in such a hostile world. Submitting to God's purposes and knowing there's vindication coming. I mean, wouldn't you like to have the strength and resolve that our Lord Jesus had to say these kinds of things even in advance and knowing that he's going to have to go through it all and then to go through it all and to have the strength of the Lord meet him and then be vindicated? The servant, when he actually came to the abject suffering, would receive strength. Can you imagine all this going on in the mind of Jesus Christ at his trial and his crucifixion as he spoke so long ago in Isaiah 40 as the pre-incarnate one that this prophecy would be fulfilled in his trial. I mean, here's your strong Savior. Jesus is not a weak Savior. He deserves all of our admiration and devotion and blessing. And we know, we know the fulfillment of Isaiah 50. But you know, All you really need is Isaiah 50. And we're still wondering, though, if you just look at Isaiah 50, why did the servant have to suffer so much? It doesn't seem to still really make sense yet in the context of the first song and the second song where he's going to go out and remove theological ignorance and establish justice in the world and and save people from their sins. Well, the answer is going to come before we even get to the New Testament, because the answer in the fourth song, in Isaiah 52 and 53, is so clear, you'll think you're reading the New Testament. That's how clear it's going to be. Jesus died for our sins, and if we place our faith in Him, then we'll be forgiven and we'll have eternal life. That's all that's required. So we're to trust in the Lord God and in His obedient, suffering servant without even fully knowing why? Hopefully you know why already. Well, the speech of the servant's over now. And so, now the Lord God encourages us to trust him. And this outline is very simple in verses 10 and 11, because in verse 10, we have God's words to believers, those who actually trust his servant. These are words of encouragement to you, to us, in verse 10. Those of you who despise the servant and don't want to trust him, well, verse 11 is for you. And so we read here, the servant's speech ends with these words, he ended with words of triumph, even though that triumph was yet to be seen. I mean, it, it would be like 700 years yet until the resurrection after the cross. And so God himself now speaks to those who are listening to this speech, even us, words to believers who trust in verse 10, who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Behold, all you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire and by the torches you've kindled. This you have from my hand. You shall lie down in torment. So those who fear the Lord 
are defined in verse 10 as those who obey the voice of a servant. I mean, that's what it means to fear the Lord. It means to obey Jesus. It's the same thing. The ideas are equivalent. It's just like the Lord Jesus would teach in John chapter 5 when he said, he who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. He who does not honor the Son, Jesus said this about himself, does not honor the Father who sent him. And the walking in darkness here is describing our situation that we find ourselves in often as a servant of the Lord when we're trying to obey. Because sometimes it's really dark and we can't see. And we don't understand what's really going on. It's like walking in darkness and life can be scary. And walking with Jesus in the midst of a world who typically hates him can be a very scary thing. And we're likewise, like Jesus, we're going to suffer abuse and injustice and affliction, maybe even death just like Jesus. And when this is your situation, we're told to trust in Yahweh and rely upon him as your God, just like his servant did, Jesus. We should not discard our God or give up on being obedient like Israel did, but we should be like the true servant and keep keeping on. And if we do this, our destiny is going to be like that of the servant in our passage. It's going to be one of great glory and honor. Just as we're united to Jesus Christ by faith, we're united with him in his suffering as well as in his glory. And then on the other hand, here are God's words to unbelievers, those who are self-sufficient in verse 11. Behold all of you who kindle a fire, who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, and by the torches you've kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. So these are people who kindle their own fire. Rather than looking to the light that God provides, they decide they're going to create their own light in the midst of their darkness of suffering. So rather than entrusting the Lord and trusting his servant and trusting Jesus Christ as the light, this is the image. It's that they light up some torches and they find a way to attach them to their bodies so that they can walk through darkness and have light and have their hands available to deal with whatever adversary or situation might come their way. And they're free to defend themselves. But that's a very dangerous thing to do. These are those people who are seeking their own salvation and their own wisdom and strength from other sources. Perhaps you've met such people. But people's own remedies for their own life's trials are always doomed to fail. So when God commands in verse 11, walk in the light of your fire, he could be simply saying, go ahead. And find out for yourself that your light that you kindled for yourself is insufficient to meet your needs. But more likely, this statement is an ironic statement, stating how their fire will consume them. In other words, go ahead. You're going to be torched by your own torches. Then his final word, they will receive when they receive it, it'll be directly from his hand, he says, Death and then eternal torment. Those who refuse God's servant, Jesus, is the only way, as he himself said, they'll die in their sins and go to hell. One commentator put a, this whole section in a really good summary in the end here, and he simply says this, There's only one light in the darkness of human sin, the one kindled by God in and through his servant. To refuse that light and to embrace some other is to open oneself to a devouring fire. That's what verses 10 and 11 are about. 
And God would actually launch into another speech on the same topic. So if you want to follow the context, just continue reading in verse 51. So verse 51, 1 through 8, it's another speech. And it's a speech about exactly the same kinds of things we've just been talking about. But here in our passage, at the very end, verses 10 and 11, the Lord God is encouraging us to trust Him and to trust His servant and what He would do. So, I mean, where do you go in the face of your difficulties in life? We all have them. Upon whom do you rely? And to those of us who have already put our faith in Jesus, God in this passage is encouraging us to continue trusting Him, to continue trusting the Lord Jesus in our dark days, and He will support us, He'll console us. And God reminds us of the futility and the foolishness of taking matters into our own hands. All you have to do to see how foolish that is is to look at the people who absolutely rely on that their whole life. It doesn't work. The only thing that works and the only hope is in Jesus Christ and His servant. Do you think you can save yourself? Or do you trust in the Lord and His obedient suffering servant? The central application of the third servant song in Isaiah is pretty obvious. We're to glory in Jesus Christ, the servant who suffered for our salvation. That's the take home. That's really what it's all about. We should see him afresh as one who suffered with great dignity, strength, and purpose. And maybe that's a new way for you to see what Jesus did in his work while he was here. The dignity in the midst of his humiliation and his strength and his purpose and his resolve. And we should also realize that he would be our pattern and our suffering for the will of God. The Apostle Peter in 1 Peter chapter 2 says this, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. And then he alludes to the fourth song, which we'll get to next week, Isaiah 53, 9, when Peter continues, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he didn't revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Well, Jesus the Christ is the ideal servant, Yahweh's servant, the ideal Israel, He will redeem and then empower the true Israel to be Yahweh's servants as we should be. And we've talked about this each and every Sunday and we've, as we've looked over these servant songs. We as the church are to continue as servants of Yahweh in the manner of the servant of Yahweh and proclaim the gospel of salvation from sins, of fearing the Lord and obeying the servant. Salvation doesn't come from light that people make for themselves. And people love doing that. But salvation doesn't come from making our own light and our own efforts, but only and truly from trusting in the one and only obedient, suffering servant, Jesus Christ. And you know, he's the model servant for us as well. And that often gets overlooked in evangelical churches in America, that Jesus is also a model. He's a model that we need today because he models strength when we want to give in to weakness. He models submission to God's will when we want to just find another way. He models to us how to suffer with dignity. He models for us a hope 
in being vindicated by God the judge who is on our side. So now turn in your Bibles to another passage, Romans 8, 31 and following. I want you to see the illusions here. As the Apostle Paul understands this parallel, and he talks so often in his letters about being united to Christ by faith, being united in his suffering, being united in his glory, and having a deep relationship with him. But Romans 8.31 and following. So what shall we say to these things? He just got done talking about how glorious our salvation is. What should we say to these things? If God is for us, well, who is against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? I want you to see the allusion here to Isaiah 50. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died, yes, rather, he who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who also intercedes for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Or who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Just as it is written, and this is a quotation from Psalm 44, for they, thy sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Only God knows. And God does know what lies ahead for us at Calvary Church. So continue to listen and to obey His will as we do His mission. And what joy He will take us in, and what suffering He has planned for us. I promise you He has suffering planned for us, because that's part of following Jesus. But there's going to be joy in the midst of all of that, and an opportunity to grow and to accomplish His will, and show that He, His strength is perfected in our weakness. There will be suffering, but there will also be strength, and there's going to be then a greater glory and a greater honor that would not be there if it were not for that suffering. Well, let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we adore you as the one who died, yes, rather, who was raised to life again, who is at the right hand of God, interceding and bringing all power and grace purchased for us into our lives by the very indwelling of the Holy Spirit that lives within us. We praise you for this, Lord Jesus. Nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from the love of the Father. For we are yours. We are your people, and we are with you for all eternity. And we ask that you would bless this word of yours to our souls this week as we would meditate upon you, Lord Jesus, and all the glories that you have amassed for yourself by the work you did. And we pray these things for your sake. Amen.